Welcome to Orthodox.Faith. My name is John Harmon. And this is Ron Bentley. We are wrapping up our series in this episode, Ron, called Ultimate Hope Has a Name. And throughout this series, we've been pointed toward a particular destination, ultimate hope. What we mean by ultimate hope, and this is important to understand in this context, is a place where we can fix our hope beyond which we need not hope for anything else. As human beings, it's really easy for us to put our hopes on things and on people that are only going to lead us needing to hope for something else a little bit farther down the road. It just forces us to keep kicking the can of our hope farther down the road. (laughs) And what we're talking about in this series is there is such a thing as ultimate hope. It has a name, and we're driving to that name in this episode. As the listeners may recall, in the chapter on love in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he concludes with the phrase, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the great of these is love. I think I jokingly said that some people, all they get out of it is the title to the Beatles song, All You Need Is Love. (laughs) I want to reiterate (laughs) that what Paul did say implies that hope is extraordinarily important. We opened up with the letter of 1 Peter with those words, we have new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And as far as Peter is concerned there, the prophets looked forward to it. Peter knows that those who read this letter did not actually see the events around Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and yet they too still hope. And Peter ties this hope to the mysterious, to us, title of Christ or Messiah in Hebrew. Right, and we stepped back to explore the story of Messiah in the Bible itself, just taking a look at what is hope and where was it fixed in the biblical story in order to inform our own understanding of ultimate hope. We looked at the expectations of Messiah and how those expectations grew from the experiences of ancient Israel, all the way up to the experiences of Jews in the first century. We talked about how this idea encapsulated the hopes of those who trusted in God, and also how that could go both very right and how it could go wrong and even perhaps betray those who misunderstood it. Now we conclude, and we conclude with a closer look at what that hope came to mean specifically for Christians in the first century. We will start with a favorite part for many. It's the story of Jesus' birth. Many of you will know, although some of you may not, that it's two of the four Gospels that give us the stories of Jesus' birth. It's actually Matthew and Luke that give us these stories. We call them the infancy narratives. And the primary purpose of those stories is to tie Jesus to Israel's hope for a Messiah. If you're at all familiar with the first of the Gospels, Matthew, you'll know that it was a peculiar emphasis of Matthew, how much Matthew wanted to say, looking back to that Old Testament passage right here, this is where you're seeing it fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So this happened to fulfill. That's something that Matthew really harped on. And in the infancy narratives, it's Matthew who gives us the quote regarding Bethlehem. And Matthew quotes from the fifth chapter of the prophet of Micah, out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. And that's what is directly tied to our stories about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Luke is also just stacked full of this very same hope, this hope for Messiah, which is probably why it's so popular, specifically in Christmas celebrations. (laughs) I mean, right from the beginning of the book of Luke, we get actually 
actually uh, some songs and some prayers uh, right. in Luke that really focus very heavily on this Messiah fulfillment. Mary's song, for example, in Luke 1, he has helped his servant Israel, it says, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Likewise, in chapter 1, Zechariah's song, full right. of messianic fulfillment language, yes. Simeon's prayer in Luke 2, yes. when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple, Simeon prays and offers up this word of worship that says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Right Across all four gospels, we get John the Baptist, who's okay. <laughs> a yeah, really right. key figure in the Messiah fulfillment language of the Gospels. Every single one of the Gospels puts John the Baptist in the context of Isaiah 40, okay, where we're introduced to the voice of one calling in the wilderness that says, prepare the way for the Lord. Prepare the way for the Lord. Yeah. Well, John the Baptist is identified with that figure, and the very obvious message comes directly through that, hey, something big is coming. Yeah, and while we may associate this language with stories of Jesus' birth and the beginning of his ministry, the fact is this theme goes right up to the end of the Gospels. Again, we can go back to Luke for an example here. As Jesus is being brought before the Jewish leadership, right before his crucifixion, the chief priests and leaders confront Jesus and say, if you're the Christ, if you're the Messiah, then tell us. And Jesus Mm. refers to himself as the son of man, referring back to that divine figure from Daniel. And he also accepts the title, the son of God, when the leadership asks him if that's what he is. And as soon as Jesus does this, the Jewish leadership considered their case closed. The next step in that was the confrontation with Pilate. And Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? John, based on our discussion of Psalms, we we know, uh, based on what you walked us through there, that son of God and king of the Jews are two phrases that are often connected with each other there in Psalms. And according to Luke, Jesus says yes to Pilate's question. Mm -hmm. And just to be clear, all three of the synoptic gospels have that pivotal exchange we talked about earlier. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that he is? And the disciples give all kinds of answers. But Jesus then asks them, who do you say I am? And it would seem that the answer to that question is really important. That whole conversation is really important, considering how Jesus dragged his disciples way out of the way, north to Caesarea Philippi, to a a very, very pagan environment. Very, very significant that he had this conversation with them in that particular place. really underscores the importance of what Jesus is asking them in that particular case, I think. And Peter's the one who responds and insists that Jesus is Christ the Messiah. And at least as Matthew tells the story, Jesus treats this as extremely important that Peter recognizes this. Yes, all the hopes that the ancient nation of Israel had for a Messiah, all those hopes that had filtered down to the Jews of the first century, for Christians, those hopes were now entirely focused on the individual person Jesus of Nazareth, a real live human being who walked and talked and ate and drank and taught and healed and lived and died and rose again in a distant province of the Roman Empire. But the big question, Ron, is how did they know? We've talked about the danger of over-specification, the danger of reading into God's promises something that actually isn't there in God's promises. And one way to overspecify is to say, ah, 
here it is, when maybe it's not. Right. So how did the early Christians know that this was it? Yeah, the Gospels of Luke and John and the various epistles essentially point in the same direction here. The early Christians knew that this was it. They knew that Jesus is the Messiah, not just because they had scripture, what we call the Old Testament, that had trained them to look for it, but also because the Holy Spirit made it clear to them. Essentially, they were in the position to hear God's voice and to recognize the prompting that said, finally, this is it. You're one of the ones who gets to see this with your own eyes. The Gospels aren't the only place in the New Testament where this connection between Jesus and Messiah is perfectly clear. It's also just as clear in the epistles, the letters that come after the Gospels in the New Testament. In fact, in the first of those letters, Paul's opening sentence in his masterpiece, his letter to the Romans, it's a doozy. That sentence goes on for seven verses, although you may find that your English translation breaks it up a little bit just to make it easier for you to follow it. Nevertheless, before Paul reaches the first period, we are informed that Jesus, and I quote, was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, in other words, Jesus the Messiah, our Lord. So whatever Paul has to say in this letter, it revolves around this identification. Jesus instantiates the hopes for Messiah. In Paul's writings, we've observed before, the words Jesus and Christ are so closely tied. Jesus <laughs> and Messiah, Jesus and Christ. And in Paul's letters that some even make the joke that Paul thought that Christ was Jesus' last name. <laughs> Jesus' last name. Yeah. Although, you know, it's worth observing that in Romans, Paul does have a different theme here. His theme is something that he describes as a righteousness from God or a righteousness by faith. And yes. nevertheless, you can't get around the fact that it revolves around the life, death, and resurrection of this, I'll call it peculiar Messiah, this Messiah that wasn't exactly mm. what we expected. Paul did recognize throughout the letter that many in his audience that he was writing to the Romans were suffering. But as far as Paul was concerned, this was no impediment to hope. He even writes in the middle of this opening argument here, suffering leads to endurance, endurance to character, and character to hope. That seems to be Paul's target there. He goes on to say, hope doesn't disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. As he develops this initial part of his argument and he's wrapping it up, he stops to consider what hope is in the context of this salvation, this righteousness by faith. And he says that in in this hope, we are saved. He goes on to say, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? He asks rhetorically, if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Then as he develops some more complex parts of his argument there, he gets to the end of the letter and he looks back at the promises in the Old Testament. And as far as Paul is concerned, this hope is inextricably tied to those promises. He says, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, and he's referring to the Old Testament, endurance and encouragement of the scriptures through those we might have hope. 
He even concludes with a benediction of sorts that hammers on this importance of hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, let's let's unpack this hope for just a second. Back to the original promises through the unfolding of hope in the Old Testament through the prophets up to the first century. And if we think about this, we remember Paul knows and refers to a tradition where more than a thousand years of history stand behind it, where people looked forward to a time they hoped for a time when a Messiah would come. And we really need to emphasize here, Ron, that Paul is talking about exactly what we've been talking about in this series all along so far up to this point. That's right. Paul insisted with all other early Christians that this hope that had been expressed before, it has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. As Paul described Jesus' surprising performance as Messiah, Messiahs, for instance, they don't die. But what do you say when they come back to life? As Paul describes it, this Messiah is the key to a deep problem that plagues all of humanity. We have to be set right with God. That can only be done through the work of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus the Messiah. We've got to really focus on that idea of the work of Jesus Christ, the work of the Messiah and what he did accomplish and is accomplishing. Because when we look back over it all, it's a little clearer in hindsight why things unfolded the way they did. One of the things that I like to point out, Ron, is that if Jesus had simply come and brought the kingdom, that wouldn't have made any sense if the prior work of making us right with God had not already been accomplished. Because it makes no sense for a Messiah to come and inaugurate a kingdom that we can't be a part. <laughs> okay, we, we right. have to be set, we have to be set right with God first so that we can participate in the kingdom that he brings. Right. Unlike the disciples, we ourselves and and in this way I suppose much more like the prophets who went before, we ourselves did not get to see Jesus and nor did the recipients of Paul's letter to the Romans. In mm. fact, uh, as we're saying here, the work of the Messiah only begins with Jesus' life on earth. We now have the opportunity to see it continue and hopefully to see it finished in our own lives and the lives of others around Therein lies our hope. The Messiah's work, Jesus' work, has only begun and it goes on. Evidence is all around us that it is not complete, but we hope for that nonetheless. Having said that, that this hope lives on, this work is ongoing, we remember that the ongoing and completing work of the Messiah is part of this same thread. It hangs on the same promises of the same God who spoke to Abraham and Moses and David and the prophets before. The same promises in the hands of the same God working through the same Messiah. Okay, the picture may still be a little fuzzy. What is it exactly that we're hoping for? What is it that begins in Jesus Christ and that we still hope to see accomplished? You know, one way to come at this is to look at something that Jesus was very fond of saying at the beginning of parables in the Gospels. Jesus would often begin with the words, the kingdom of God is like And as Christians looked back at what Jesus was doing, their perspective was, here was the Messiah himself telling us what the new world he was bringing into existence ought to look like. 
Uh, yet Jesus seemed to think that the ideas would be hard enough for many to grasp that he came at it with parables, with, with puzzles, with these illustrative stories. Yeah, it gets clearer and clearer when we get to the Gospels that this kingdom that Jesus is talking about, this kingdom that's associated with Messiah, is not just an earthly kingdom. Yeah, The throne on which the son of David sits is not merely an earthly throne. The kingdom over which Messiah was to rule was not merely an earthly one, but one in which heaven itself comes and a kingdom over which God himself rules. Yeah. In fact, that whole hope is summed up in the opening sentences of the prayer that Jesus taught us as right. he talks about this very same kingdom when he says, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's really where we find it. We hope that what God wants will be done. We just have to look around us to see all the ways it's not being done. And frankly, if we're honest, I suspect we end up recognizing that we ourselves have frustrated mm. God accomplishing what God mm. wants to get done. Nevertheless, if we pray that prayer the way Jesus taught it, we hope we believe, we know that what God wants will ultimately happen. That's true. Thy will be done. When we say we pray for what we hope for, right. we pray for, for where our hopes are pinned for the future, we need to be clear, as we've been trying to be, that this isn't just saying, oh, wouldn't that be nice? That I'd be sure nice? like it if, I right. hope that, uh, I'd sure like it if something happened. When we talk about hope here, we mean an expression of confidence, of faith, of trust that God will make this happen. So when I pray this prayer, I'm expressing my desire to be a part of that kingdom, and I am aligning myself with God's interests. In my mind, that requires a massive dose of humility. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because if we're honest, we recognize that what God wants and what I want will not often be the same or will often not be the same. And so when I'm praying that prayer, I am stating, God, when you and I don't agree, I'm committing right now that I'll give up what I wanted. Hmm. And it gets even more complicated than that, though. I may well confuse what I want for what God wants, and it could take a long time and a good deal of suffering before I finally get that difference clear. And when that happens, it's not unlike those times when people tried to overspecify what the Messiah is and misidentified what the Messiah ought to be. The closing chapters of the Bible come at this another way, I think. The prophet John looks up at the end of the book of Revelation to see a new heaven and a new earth descending. And he hears a voice from heaven proclaiming, now the dwelling of God is with human beings. He will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. I doubt there is any more succinct encapsulation of the prayer, God, have your will done. Pull all of these threads together 
follow them out to the natural conclusion, and it becomes clear. We hope for a time and a place where we ourselves are free from sin and the twisted desires that warp our own behavior. We hope for a time and a place where everyone else is too. We hope for a time and a place where disputes are settled by a perfect, all-knowing judge who understands what is good for us even better than we understand it ourselves. But we're also hoping for a time and a place where we naturally live in harmony and such a judge never has to rule. Yes, we hope for that time and place where neither physical dangers nor inner turmoil can harm us, where we experience well-being and joy that cannot be interrupted, where we revel in a perfect relationship with our Creator and with others around us. Like trees planted by streams of water, (laughs) we grow into the perfect creatures that God always has intended us to be. So yeah, notice that central to the work of the Messiah is our restoration. Just as John says, as long as we choose to participate in it, we grow into the perfect creations God intended. And finally, whatever we hope for has begun in the work of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And it is ultimately expressed right at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. We hope that God's will is done. Here among us now, just as it always is done in God's presence in heaven, this will of God's that will be done and for which we hope is an absolute certainty. And it will come to pass only through the long-hoped-for Messiah and his work. So, We can say at this point with complete confidence that there is such a thing as ultimate hope, and that ultimate hope has a name. That name is Jesus. That's right. But notice that even now there is a danger of over-specifying the hope. Yeah, that danger is an ongoing one. We may hope for other messiahs when the one messiah that we were supposed to be hoping for has already come and begun his work. Right. We might also look to others to accomplish what only messiah can do. We might put our hopes in something short of messiah, that is something short of ultimate hope, where we are expecting something that will never come until we properly locate that hope into its ultimate place which is Jesus. That is a wrap for this episode, for this series, and also for this season. We are concluding our first season of the podcast with this series. It has been an amazing first season and a lot of fun to do. And we want to say just in the most sincere way possible, how much we appreciate you, the audience. Yes. We appreciate your listening. We appreciate your enthusiasm and your loyalty to the podcast that you listen episode after episode. We look forward to continuing to serve you with this content and want you to know how much we appreciate not only that you listen, but also that you share the podcast with others. We do have a sort of an interim episode coming up in the next episode. We plan to do something of a retrospective. We're going to look back at how this season has gone, look forward to what's coming in the next season. It'll be a little bit of a behind the scenes kind of thing. If you've always wondered why it is that I 
I take us out at the end. We will explain <laughs> things like that. But we look forward to seeing you in that episode. As John said, we thank you very much for listening. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please do see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. Thank you.